Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. This week, we're looking back at some of the most significant California news stories of 2020 and how they changed us. This year, we saw some of the most destructive wildfires in state history. Blazes that, when combined, scorched an area larger than the state of Delaware, destroyed or damaged thousands of structures, and claimed over 30 lives. One person who thinks deeply about wildfires is Jana Valakovic. She's an expert on forest management and ecology with the University of California Cooperative Extension and studies the relationship between people and fires. Yeah, well, I had a lot of thoughts about this year. I mean, it certainly is a game changer for many of us because we've seen that really there's no location in California that's immune to fire. You know, our homes are really some of the most combustible parts of that landscape. So what can we do differently and how can we you know, use this moment to achieve resiliency and adaptation? So when it comes to this past wildfire season or others, what do you think Californians need to think more about when it comes to fire and the fire-prone landscapes we live in? One, not all fire, wildfire is bad. Uh, there were a lot of uh, fires that had lower severity burn conditions, and that's good for our landscapes that, you know, require heat for regeneration and and also to consume some of that excess fuel that's out there. The other part is also about understanding uh, how we build our homes and what we don't do to set ourselves up for success. Well, let's talk about that. Is our wildfire problem really a wildfire problem, or is it more about where we build, how we build, and what our structures are made out of? All above, um, and let me, let me start from like the 10,000 foot view in that we, we have a, you know, a professionally trained force, uh, firefighters, to manage this natural occurring disturbance. But when it comes to hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, you know, we don't have a professional force for those. Instead, what do we do? You know, we adapt and we build smarter. I feel like a lot of us just rely on others to take care of the issues. And, you know, what is the opportunity for us to be a part of that solution? What do you think we should do on the public policy front? Or or put another way, what is state government and local government not doing in the face of the fire threat? I think we're not doing two things. I think fire gets siloed and it's hard to do integrated planning across jurisdictions and integrate, for example, public health into fire response. Animal evacuation has lots of rooms for improvement. Alert systems have lots of room for improvement. But, you know, we haven't really created as much integration as we can. I think there's interest there, but there's just a lot of institutional barriers for that. The other issue is that, you know, fire is a chronic issue, and we tend, I think, in public policy to divert resources 
to these acute crises. And I mean, we're in one now with COVID and everybody understands, but it's made it very difficult to have any extra capacity to, to fund um, prevention in a more you know, substantial way because there's always some acute issue that's coming before us. And so, you know, fire is something we don't know when it's going to occur, so it's easy just to hope that it's not going to happen. I think everyone is earnest in their interest and efforts, but I think we need to figure out how to prioritize this a little better. All right. Forestry and fire expert Yana Valakovic, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And let's stay on the topic of fires. A new study on the comprehensive cost of wildfires estimates that the 2018 California wildfires led to thousands of deaths, many more than the official count. It also costs the state around $150 billion. That larger number factors in the harm of air pollution and the broader economic impacts of these disasters. KQED's Danielle Venton reports. Disasters, including the car and campfires, directly killed 106 people two years ago. An international group of scientists now estimate toxic smoke contributed to the deaths of another 3,600. I think the problem historically is that we've been counting what's easiest to count. UC Irvine researcher Stephen Davis is one of the authors. You know, the numbers of buildings destroyed or the people that were literally, uh, you know, killed in a fire because they were, you know, in a building that burned. It's a lot harder to follow, you know, the tendrils of literally uh, smoke or uh, the economic damages that permeate throughout the, the global economy. Davis and his colleagues used a model developed by the EPA, with input from air sensors to satellite data, to calculate the broad health impacts. They also tracked how industries were affected by fires and how that disrupted the economies of counties, the state, nation, and world. Researchers put the financial cost for the 2018 fires at nearly $150 billion. That's six times the official estimate, which only counts destroyed and damaged property. Calculating a disaster footprint like this is complicated, but Davis says the way we do things now doesn't give an accurate picture. It's very easy to understand the costs of moving away from fossil fuels. It's a lot harder to understand what are the benefits of that because they're so diffuse. This approach, he says, can help governments, business and the public better understand the real cost of climate-driven disasters like wildfires. And the economic benefits of addressing climate change. For The California Report, I'm Danielle Venton.
Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the Earth needs a good lawyer. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at SchmidtFutures.com and Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from DrinkHint.com. And finally, this week we're spending some time recalling the lives of Californians who died this year because of the coronavirus pandemic. This morning, we remember Rosemary Castro Olega of Los Angeles, who died on March 29th at the age of 63. Ms. Castro Olega worked as a nurse for 37 years before her retirement and was a devoted Lakers fan. Indonesian-born Henry Santoso of Walnut died on April 12th, also at the age of 63. He worked as a warehouse supervisor. As an immigrant, Mr. Santoso took satisfaction in providing a better life for his two sons. And Joanne Smith of the Pala Indian Reservation died on September 11th. Miss Smith was a founding member of the reservation's youth center and was known for her devotion to the betterment of the Pala Band of Mission Indians. Friends say she also loved a good laugh. And that's the California Report for Thursday, December 31st, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Let's hope we have a better 2021 than we did a 2020. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.